Hello everybody and welcome to this brand new episode of the Enterprising Gen Z podcast. This is the weekly show where I talk to some of the top entrepreneurs and industry professionals from around the world to inspire and empower you guys, the next generation of business leaders. My name is Sam Watson, I'm a 19 year old entrepreneur, originally from North London but I'm now living and studying in Paris while I get my business degree. On today's show I've got a very special guest who's Ved Nathwani. Ved is the founder and managing director of Cataclysm Ventures and is a venture scout and social media and content manager at Ada Ventures. Now we're going to be talking about everything to do with venture capital, but specifically what makes a business investable. We're also going to be taking a deep dive into legal tech investment and how Ved is able to manage uni and entrepreneurship at the same time. Ved has also been featured in some awesome publications such as The Times, so we're going to be talking about how he managed to get himself featured in these articles. Now obviously not all businesses need funding and lots of entrepreneurs are of the impression that every single business needs funding, but that's actually not the case. We talk about which businesses just don't need investment and how to determine a if you're ready and b if you need investment at all now the world of venture capital is incredibly complicated and i can't say that i completely understand it being completely honest with you listening back to this episode i learned so much from ved and i hope you do the same as well if you do enjoy this episode please feel free to leave a five star review wherever you're listening from and a five star written review if you're listening on apple podcasts feel free to check out our socials we're at enterprising gen z pod on instagram and on tiktok and my linkedin and ved's linkedin will be in the show notes Thank you so much for clicking on this episode of the Enterprising Gen Z podcast, and I hope you enjoy. Hey, Ved, how's it going? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Uh, it's an early start, um, but, but, but we're rolling with it. I just wanted to um, give you the opportunity to introduce yourself and say who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Ved. I'm a second year law student at Queen Mary in London. But outside of that, I do a bunch of things in kind of the startup ecosystem. So I recently founded Cataclysm Ventures, which is the world's first investment community and angel syndicate for legal tech. And I can go more into that in a bit. Um, I'm also head of platform for the Queen Mary Social Venture Fund, which is the UK's first student-led, impact-focused early stage venture fund. And I've done a few other things. So I freelance and I scout for Ada Ventures, a early stage fund investing in climate, healthcare and aging and economic empowerment in the UK and do a bunch of other stuff across the ecosystem. But again, we can touch on that later. Awesome. So yeah, I've heard a lot about you um, from various people. We chatted about this earlier, but um, when you came, when Ed Lawrence came on the episode and uh, on the show, it was quite a while ago now. Um, I think it might have been last season. Uh, he did mention your name on the show. We connected on LinkedIn. And I kind of read through your profile. I thought you'd be a great person to come on the show because investment isn't something we've touched on it really briefly, um, but it's not something we've really gone into depth, gone into depth, gone into um, detail about. I should say. Um, so I want to first kind of ask you about Cataclysm Ventures. Um, what is it? Why did you start it? All that kind of, all the, all the juicy details. Yeah, sure. So um, in order to get there, I guess I have to give you a little bit of background. So I started working for Ada Ventures when I just started university um, about last year, September 2021. Um, and prior to that, I generally had an interest in the venture capital space, um, how early, early, stage companies are funded really um and generally i was quite fascinated about how kind of um these companies grew and scale at fast rates and how vc funds basically came in to propel them with money um but i as a law student was also interested you know in the legal tech landscape um i was 
I was kind of trying to figure out how I could kind of match my interests. And I started doing research over time into kind of early stage investment into legal tech. Um, and also particularly why pre-seed and seed stage funds, and these are kind of venture capital funds, which invest at the very, very early stages, um, when companies are really small, they might just be a founding team of two or three. They're still developing their product if they're kind of in certain sectors or they're still trying to find product market fit slash have kind of found it and are just starting to scale. Um, and what I came to the conclusion was, unlike in areas like fintech or medtech or health tech or whatever it is, um, in legal tech, a lot of these companies were funded by angel investors. And these are people sometimes high net worth individuals, other times, you know, ex-founders or operators who have a little bit of money, which they want to invest themselves into startups. Um, and rather than being funded by kind of these pre-seed, seed stage funds, these angel investors came in and kind of helped propel these startups at the early stages. But there was very, very little structure to it, particularly outside the US. And legal tech is this kind of this kind of industry where there's a lack of knowledge from many parts of the ecosystem. And unless you've, you know, been a lawyer or worked in a law firm or um, seen kind of, you know, been at the forefront of legal innovation, you don't really have an understanding of the potential for growth in the space. Um, and that's part of the reason why there was this kind of gap in the market to try and bring a bit more structure to early stage investing Um so the syndicate is still really early days. I'm still definitely building out the investment community, kind of curating a deal flow pipeline of startups which are investable. Um, but I think, you know, the way it works or ultimately I want it to work is there's angel investors and there's people who want to put capital down into the sector, be that in contract automation or access to justice or anything like that. Um, and they pull their money and you you set up an SPV, which is a special purpose vehicle where you can kind of pull their money into one, into one kind of investment um, and you make an investment and you can act a bit more like a fund whilst at the same time you have the value out of so many different people who've invested and all their network all their knowledge, all their contacts, um, which can really support a startup at the early stages where they really don't always have those contacts or that knowledge around building in a certain space or sector. So that's kind of a brief overview of Cataclysm. Um, it's definitely been an interesting journey to date. Um, in terms of how, you know, the economy at the moment is not great, how's that impacting Cataclysm from your perspective? To be quite frank, it's stalled a lot of what I wanted to have expected. And maybe I was a little naive going into it. Um, and I, I was speaking to a very, very close friend of mine who's who's an investor, um, who was an ex-founder turned investor. Um, and I was saying, you know, I just kind of expected expected it to go really smoothly. All these angels would be interested and make a first investment kind of thing. But it's definitely not gone that way. I think there's so much I've learned along the way in terms of kind of what investors are looking for. And actually, what investors as an angel investor as an individual is looking for could be very different to what a VC fund is looking for, which is where more of my experience has been. Um, so that's something I've struggled with. But with the market specifically, um, you know, 
individuals don't necessarily want to invest right now into startups. It's not necessarily a conducive environment. Um, if VC funds are holding off investment generally, then it's even more likely angel investors aren't going to invest. I mean, it's a little bit different in the US where I've seen, you know, angel investors continuing to invest. Um, but outside of the US, I think there's been a lot more hesitancy. People are trying to push rounds as in they're trying to close investment rounds much later. So they may have intended to close in September. Now they're aiming for December, January, because they're hoping by then there's more stability. Um, and as soon as I guess there's more stability, then there's also kind of, it means people are more more likely to want to invest. And I think the other thing that's affecting kind of investment generally is kind of, you know, high inflation cost of living crisis, which of course, affects people's personal finances so they're less likely to want to put money into high-risk investments into startups but also it just means that people are like well we'll just wait out and we'll we'll wait for another few months to hopefully see um hopefully see you know i guess um things calm down but now i'm wondering because obviously my my listener base is mainly made up of gen z entrepreneurs and i'm assuming most of them will probably have um I want to have investment at some point throughout their, you know, their startup journey. Um, I was wondering from your perspective, kind of working in the finance and the investment kind of sector for, for quite a while now, um, what makes a business investable? So much. Um, and it really depends on what angle you look at it from. So, so venture, maybe, maybe I'll start with going back to kind of the origins of venture capital. So VC kind of emerged in the valley in San Francisco in the Bay Area quite a while ago. And the whole idea was to fund these kind of booming tech startups, but which needed capital to grow, um, but basically had a very specific business model that they could make these massive returns for investors. Um, and then it started to, you know, spread across the world. And at the early stages, which I assume most of your listeners are at where they, you know, they're building out an idea or a product and they're trying to get proof of concept, find product market fit, all of that kind of jazz. Um, you know, investors look for a lot of different things, but primarily and number one from what I look at and from a lot of investors I know will look at is the team. Because, you know, if you're building a product, if you're building a company, they're it's not going to be a smooth path. It never will be. There will be a lot of iterations. There'll be a lot of changes. Um, you know, I've seen that from Cataclysm itself because it, in a sense it's a startup and I've changed a lot of stuff up. I still am. Um, but what the idea you initially come with is not necessarily going to be the idea you take to market and is not necessarily going to be the idea or the product or whatever it is in five years time but what will be and what will aid the growth of that startup is the team like is that team vibing well and i guess that's quite a fluffy word in a sense but does it work well can you execute on an idea can you can you make sure that um can you make sure that you know, plans stay together and the team stays together. So you see so many startups fail, which might have an incredible idea, which might have, you know, um, so much funding from incredible, you know, funds, but they 
the team just doesn't work or a co-founder drops out or, um, you know, you've indexed too much on hiring technical people and you don't have people who can sell and people who can market, which is vital. And then startups do the other way around. They index too much on having those skills and putting together a non-technical team. And then you don't have anyone who can actually build an incredible product. So making sure it's kind of a balanced team, you have co-founders whose skills are not the same, but actually, you know, when they're matched together, make a perfect team to kind of build whatever company you're building. And of course it's sector specific and it depends whatever whatever audience you're targeting but I think that's the first thing I look at and then of course the the things most investors will look at regardless so you know the potential size of the market what the product is like um is do does the team have experience in that specific sector and is that sector kind of or does that sector have growth potential and is there space for disruption because if there isn't, then, you know, the company's going to struggle to scale. And then competition, although I think at the early stages, competition is less important um, just because lots of different companies might be considering doing things. But in two years time, all those companies may have gone down different paths. I mean, if you if if you're trying to do something that Google is doing, then maybe no, that's not necessarily investable. But if there's another startup doing similar stuff to you, but at the same stage, actually, in a sense, it validates it validates the idea because it means other people have found this to be a problem which which can be tackled. Um, but yeah, and I'm just wondering. I mean, if you're if you're a business um, or you're a startup and you you want to get funding, how, what's the best ways, in your opinion, to kind of prepare yourself? Um, what do you need to do? Kind of what are the first steps? Um, to preparing your business for like a round of funding? So it depends how you're going at it. I guess if you look at the pre-seed seed stage, there's a number of, so firstly, there's a number of things which you need to consider, including have you considered getting capital elsewhere to make sure you can kind of build that idea out? So a lot of startups prior to going to seed stage will have done gone through an accelerator for instance which has invested a small amount of money or has supported in other ways or they've received grants so at the queen mary social venture fund we've currently got four portfolio companies and out of the four i think three have had previous grants from you know innovate uk or the mayor of london's kind of um investment awards i don't know the specific name to it but you know things like that to validate that other people think your idea is a good idea and um also to help you make sure that you've actually got a product because at the end of the day most people will not invest in an idea you need to have found at least some sort of traction be that through kind of interviews with potential customers to prove that they would buy the product once it's built be that starting to build that product or mvp which is actually you know most people will look for today um It doesn't need to be fully functioning, but you need to be able to prove that, you know, this is it in its kind of basic draft form and we're going to build on this and this is what we're going to develop and blah, blah, blah. Um, But that all ought to go into your pitch deck. Um, VCs, when, when looking for investment, the first thing they'll look at is your pitch deck most of the time. And that tends to be, you know, a bunch of slides, um, not always, but a lot of the time. And it will include a lot of things. I would, I initially look at, firstly, what is a company doing? That should be very obvious from the first couple of slides. Um, If it's not, 
then it's like, well, what are you trying to, what are you trying to ask for? Why are you asking for money if I don't know what you're actually building? Um, Secondly, I think you need to include details about the team. As I mentioned before, you need to include details about the problem you're solving and where, where, like, make it a story. It's really a storytelling kind of thing. It's not just kind of, you're not, you're not pitching to a bank in a sense. You're pitching to people who want to know, is there growth to scale this company? Are you solving a big problem? And will I get returns off it? Um, And so looking at kind of the story of how you came to want to build that company and then why you're building it is something I would look at and then take that forward. So then, you know, I'm building this now. This is where I'm at. Include kind of, you know, screenshots of your MVP or things like that. And then this is where I want to be in two years time. And this is why I need your money. This is the plan trajectory of, you know, in six months time, I'll have a fully functioning product and I'm going to start, you know, selling to vendors in 10 months time, you know, I will have secured X number of partnerships, hopefully, um, and all of that. And if you've already got partnerships, even better, talk about it, talk about everything you've got, because the more traction you have, the more likely an investor is going to invest. Um, and, Investment takes a lot of time in terms of preparing because you'll speak to all sorts of funds and they'll be really nice to you and then they won't invest um, because it might not be right for the fund. You have to be very specific where you're looking um, and don't always just look at, you know, your traditional fund. So if you're a health tech founder, there are health tech angel communities which will just will, will support investing in health tech founders. If you're a female founder, it's the same thing. There's all sorts of communities for diverse founders, be it queer founders, people, ethnic minorities, disabled founders. Um, So look outside your traditional venture funds. And then also um, look at crowdfunding options. I've seen so many startups which have been, which have, you know, had investment from VC funds at pre-seed seed stage, but want top up capital before they want to raise a big round of, you know, one, two million. So they go to Crowdcube or they go to Cedars and they just launch a kind of investment campaign on there to try and get top up capital. So there's so many options out there. So don't necessarily also just think about going after venture capital money because that's what everyone else is doing. Because by the way, VCs take a lot of equity in a company. So it's really important to figure out if VC money is right for you as a company. Um, and if it's not, there's so many other options out there. Um, and for each option, you have to prepare differently. I think my biggest piece of advice would just be to reach out to entrepreneurs who've done or gone through the route you've gone through and also investors because investors might not want to invest but that a lot of the time they're very happy to want to provide advice and help you um because it's just generally good for the ecosystem um so reach out to them cold message them and just ask like what would you do and also there's so many resources online i mean this podcast is great but you can look on youtube i would recommend um reading books like the secret um, the secrets of Sandy Hill Lane or Sandy Hill Road, um, which is really good to kind of go through, you know, the structure of VC, how it works, what investors look for. And it's great both for founders and future investors, people who want to break into venture. But there's all sorts of great resources out there. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by the Cashflow Breakfast Club. You might remember Omni Casey from a couple of episodes ago. He has very kindly decided to sponsor this episode of the Enterprising Gen Z podcast. Here's a small message from Omni talking about his book. 
The book's called The Cashflow Breakfast Club. It is a story and a manual. It's my life story um, added to a few other, you know, uh, fictional characters to kind of teach lessons for financial freedom or what I call cashflow freedom. I had the goal to be financially free by the age of 30. And I was able to achieve that through real estate investing. And this gives a step-by-step guide to help anyone who is interested in learning about that or already doing it. You know, how can they do it at a higher level? Um, so it's on Amazon or omnitheinvestorguy.com. Without further ado, let's get back to the show. That was really interesting. But one thing I noticed you mentioned products. Do you think companies which are providing a service are less investable? Not necessarily. So, you know, one of the big one of the big kind of uh, I guess glamour points of venture capital is and where a lot of VCs have made their money recent in the past, you know, decade, two decades has been in SaaS, which is software as a service. So it's a product, but ultimately it's a service and it's because of how the business model works. It's like if one if another person buys a subscription to your service, you're not actually required to put in any more money to make that product better in a sense it's not a bakery where you're kind of if someone else wants another sandwich you then have to put in money to buy the bread to buy the filling blah 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 it's you've built this product and then more and more people will start buying it and you just have to make it tiny iterations to make it better so that's how these companies can start to grow and in a sense that's a service you've seen companies um You've seen, you know, all sorts of people raise money, um, including universities, um, new tech, uh, new tech founded universities. Um, What I would say is like service based, software based products and services generally tend to scale faster because there's less input. If you're building a physical hardware product, especially in deep tech, for instance, if you're building carbon capture technology to, you know, suck carbon out of the atmosphere to reduce the effects of climate change, that's going to take a lot of R&D, which obviously is going to require a lot more money at the early stages compared to a software company, which you can hire one engineer or you can build it yourself online. Um, and then you can kind of deploy it and it takes a lot less kind of capital resource. Um, and neither one is better than the other for investors. And certain investors only look in one sector and in others. Um, I would say it really, really depends on what you're building. Like I could not say if a service is less or more investable because I would need to see a pitch deck. And that's exactly why you need to tell a story to prove that you're investable. That's a very good answer. Thank you very much for that. And now I'm wondering if you're a business and you want to go down the funding route, and um, it's kind of something in your roadmap you think this is something I want to do and want to get involved with. I, 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 from what I've read before I did, like I did my research before, I, you know, we, we, we jumped on the podcast, not all businesses need investment. How, how would you as a business determine if you're a business that needs investment or not? Well, I mean, if you're already revenue making, if you're, or if there's a very direct and obvious path to make revenue very quickly, then there's no need for investment. Um, if you're so, for instance, if you're setting up a legal practice or a hairdressers or whatever, um, and there's very obvious routes to you making money. So you you open a barber shop, you you essentially cut people's hair, and they pay you money. It's very very simple. 
then it's much easier to probably just get a bank loan to, for the initial resource of, you know, buy or renting, renting space and the equipment and all of that. But you're, you'll probably be making money within one to two months. Whilst if you're building, you know, a SaaS product or you're building, you know, a uh, a hardware product, which is, you know, a medical device or whatever, which changes how, uh, I don't know, cancer is screened or whatever, um, then you're going to need that money because it's going to take you five, six years to actually develop that product, to actually find product market fit, to get to the point where people are, to get to the point where people are buying uh, subscriptions to your service or buying enough of the product um, to be able to actually make money off it. So there's, a lot of good articles out there um, talking about what businesses are venture backable and what aren't, and they need to have the potential to scale crazily fast and not even fast to, you know, generate millions in revenue. So think of Deliveroo, think of Babylon Health, think, think of Google, Facebook. These companies have scaled to the point where they have millions of users and they're making this massive churn on money because ultimately if an investor goes in at the early stage and puts, you know, hundred K, 200 K, 500 K into your business, because they put it in so early, there's a high risk. They're not going to get a reward on it. So they're betting on the fact that in five, 10 years time, you are making, you know, a hundred million, 500 million, 1 billion, um, and you've you've got that value, you know, unicorns, um, which are valued at a billion pounds or above. You've you've reached that kind of benchmark, and there's these venture benchmarks to prove that these investors are actually going to get return on their money um, and return on their investment. So I would definitely say look at that. And if your business definitely is not going to scale to that height, then venture backable investment is not right for you and there's nothing wrong with that other either because I think you know a lot of Gen Z people glamorize getting VC investment um there's a bunch of cool companies which have which have scaled um and also even software companies which have scaled without any VC backed investment I'm pretty sure Khan Academy the the online kind of edtech platform had no VC backing it was bootstrapped and then it started making revenue quite quickly and they may have I don't know the specifics, but they may have got kind of money from elsewhere, but I'm pretty sure they didn't get any VC-backed investment. And there's all sorts of other other routes to it. And it, I think it's really important to highlight that. It's really interesting you mentioned that. And I was also wondering, I mean, if you're, what, if you're pitching to an investor or you're sending out pitch decks and stuff like that, what puts off an investor from investing in you? Ah, very good question. I mean, this is very person-specific. Um, and it really depends on what the investor values more. So for instance, I don't, maybe I'll put it in context. So at the Queen Mary Social Venture Fund, you might be an amazing company. You might have a great business plan, but if you don't have impact or social impact at the core of what the business is doing, so if you're not building climate tech or ed tech or something where you can see tangible impact on people's lives and the environment, then we're not really going to invest in you. Um, alternatively, you just couldn't be right for the fund. A lot of times startups just try to pitch to everyone and that's really not the way to do it. Like I've had so many people just like randomly find my email online, send me pitch decks and I'm like, you're raising a series A or you're, you're kind of building in an area which, you know, the funds I'm 
I have ties to aren't investing in. So you have to be very specific with where you're looking. Uh, and that's something that puts investors off. Um, I think more and more, it's like if you can't show a diverse team, if you can't show that you have a sustainable business model, um, if you're if you're building something in an area like, for instance, gambling, um, where people definitely, you know, ethical concerns come in, then that puts investors off. I think also a lot of the time investors are like, if I can't really see proof of product, um, if I can't really see other other kind of, um, I guess, other kind of traction, then that's like investors will say, come back to us once you've, you know, built an MVP or you've got X number of people who've said, you know, they're interested and they've got kind of um, feedback from them. You need traction for investment because people are not just going to throw money at you. Definitely. That's really interesting. You mentioned that. I think that's super, super valid and really important as well. And now I was reading over your LinkedIn before you came on um, and I saw you had a role at Ada Ventures um, as part of their uh, as part of their scout program. Um, I was I would love to hear, hear a bit more about kind of what that is and what your role is there. Yeah, sure. Um, so Ada Ventures is a early stage venture fund in the UK um, and we invest across three kind of key areas, which are climate, healthcare and aging and economic empowerment. And the Scout program is kind of a way for the fund to reach communities where the direct investment team doesn't have access to, to reach diverse founders and to reach um, and to essentially find great ideas um, hidden away all across the UK. Um, And so as a Scout, I guess I, I bring back companies which are right for the right for the fund and um if if they invest then i get a little bit of carry um on on the investment but i think i joined the scout program because of the community and the opportunity to learn like bringing bringing in bringing in companies and getting feedback on them actually figuring out what investors look for when they invest all of that is really important in a sense for someone who's just getting into vc i think I was very, very lucky to kind of have these opportunities at such a young age and having networked my way into certain ones and having um, having developed relationships with investors. Um, I think, you know, Ada Ventures is great because they value diversity and they value diversity of thought um, because people look at and analyze companies in all different ways and they'll, they'll look at the risks of investing in a company in all different, in all different ways. Um, so that's yeah that's about eight adventures i guess the scout program is quite unique so scout programs generally kind of came out of the u.s uh, some bigger funds have had them uh in the past and it's basically a way for these funds to to reach these companies to find these companies without without needing to put lots of kind of actual fully timed employed uh fully yeah full-time employees um doing that because a lot of early stage VC funds don't have a big investment team. They have, might have two, three, four, five investors who just do investment, but they're not actually that big and they have a lot of other things to manage. Um, but obviously you want to make the best investments. And uh, so the Scout program is a way for Ada to kind of reach reach these communities, be that diverse founders, be that in these specific sector areas, all of that. And in terms of, because um, you started uh, your role at Ada and part of the program before you started Cataclysm, um, yeah. 
do you think it kind of inspired you to start, I guess, Cataclysm Ventures? I think so, to an extent. I think I, I had been thinking about, like, what I could do a bit more for a while, but I think it was a propelling point because then I started to actually get feedback on companies I bought back and I started to actually figure out, you know, what, what VCs were looking for. So I felt more confident in being able to at least try and start something. Um, and, like, nothing had ever been done in the legal tech space like this before, and I was like, you know, let's just see where it goes. There's no harm in trying. Um, and I think that's something, you know, when you're young and when you have when you're at university and you have a bit of time on your hands there's nothing really you can lose from trying to get out because at the end of the day if it doesn't work out you've learned so much in the process and i think that's invaluable and that will stay with you for the rest of your career so i think that was yeah i think that was a main point which really put uh, which really kind of pushed me over the edge i guess i started after scouting for a few months i kind of um kind of decided why not just try it out i think you're right i think experience is a the best teacher and b kind of pushes you into a field that you're really passionate about so i would have never fallen into entrepreneurship and hosting the podcast and um, launching my events company if it wasn't for my work experience at wing but, but without that exposure i don't think i would have ever like fallen into the, this kind of world or community at all um i was just wondering kind of on a personal level do you enjoy what you do? I think so. I think, I think, like, in today's day and age, um, so maybe, again, a bit of context. So I did my A-levels basically in lockdown, um, and so that gave me a lot of time to explore what I wanted to do with my career. And I think a lot of, a lot of people, young people in today's day and age kind of are like, you know, I have to choose what I'm doing at A-level. I need to choose my degree subject, and that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And that's really not the case because there are so many opportunities out there and there's so much research which has gone into kind of the future of work and um, I was actually speaking to a really close friend of mine who works in ed tech and she was telling me that you know people basically predict that if you're working for 50 years after you graduate university you could have like six seven different careers in that time if you think of your career as in eight year stints and you can build a lot of expertise in in that time um and today people don't stay in a job for 50 years um in the same company they rotate they try new things out and i think that makes the workforce a lot more agile and a lot more flexible so i went into kind of venture and entrepreneurship quite accidentally in a sense because i was definitely very set on a career in law but i was like you know there's a lot of other opportunities out there why not try it out I definitely think I enjoy what I do. I'm not sure if I want to be in VC long term or if I want to start my career when I graduate in VC or if I, even if I do, if I'm going to kind of do that for the rest of my life and vice versa, if I want to start a startup. But I think all experience is good experience. You develop valuable skills, industry insights, knowledge, um, whatever you're doing at whatever age. I think just do as much as possible to figure out what you want to do because I think that's one of the biggest pitfalls young people today experiences they don't actually do anything more than what's required of them yeah no i totally agree i think um without passion it's very difficult to excel in what you do um you know i've um seen people in their careers and people i've spoken to and uh, going into various various offices speak to people and you can tell which ones don't have a passion for what they do um you know they kind of have a lackluster approach to whatever they do and I guess it's sad when you're working in, in the job market for so many years and you never go into work feeling like 
I this is my passion. This is what I want to do. Um, and I've spoken about this before, like what I'm doing at the moment. You know, I genuinely love what I'm doing. Um, I want to move on now, side to PR. So you've been featured in the Times, um, Artificial Lawyer, and, and some other publications. Um, and I was just wondering how you a got into those publications and um, like how what your kind of strategy was to kind of get featured. Um. Again, this is quite funny because I wasn't actually looking to be featured in in the press. It was so at the times um I get uh, someone found me. I think they found my podcast online and initially I thought it was fake because I was I sat in a I can remember this quite vividly. I sat in a I think it was a landlord tutorial or a uh, or a contract law tutorial last year and email pops up and I'm like what is this? Why is someone reaching out saying they want to they want to ask me some questions for a Times article. And it's like, this is fake. The email address did not say at the Times. Um, but I was like, okay, I'll see what happens. So ended up hopping on a call with the journalist that evening. And they were interested in about how Gen Z are kind of approaching the world of work. Um, and I guess it linked quite well to my podcast about speaking to kind of people who would achieve success through unconventional means. Um, but that was literally from a cold email and then the artificial lawyer um which is a very big legal tech publication um i think richard who who runs it um saw my post on linkedin about kind of launching cataclysm and reached out and was like do you want to answer some questions um and i think like building a personal brand on social media has really helped i think generally personal brands are so important and people don't value that as much um especially like it's not just on instagram uh it's like use linkedin to the fullest extent use twitter twitter's amazing in the startup world um i never really used to use twitter but it's just a way to meet and contact people who otherwise you don't have access to and actually hear their insider thoughts um but also you know people on tiktok on instagram it's like use social media to your advantage because regardless what industry you're in regardless what you're doing um so many opportunities could come from from kind of building a personal brand so off the back of getting in the artificial lawyer so many people reach out to me which i've met so many people off the back of that um who've actually helped me with cataclysm who've like provided their insights um who are you know really experienced lawyers ex-general counsel have been working in the industry for 20 30 years um and are interested in helping me so yeah i think personal branding is vital and i know ed spoke about that a lot in his podcast too yeah, personal branding is so important. I've been making a, a like a bigger, bit more of a shift than I ever did on my LinkedIn, um, and amassed you know thousands and thousands and thousands of views on my posts. And that exposure, I guess, is is kind of TikTokish because the algorithm works in a way that it gets shared to everybody else's network, and in that way you can create so many engagements to my posts. And since um, I started posting on LinkedIn more and more, I've actually found a tangible difference in the number of listeners coming onto my podcast or inquiries I've had about events and kind of potential partnerships and sponsors and all that kind of stuff, all from posting on LinkedIn. It takes me about an hour a week, so I don't know why everybody on LinkedIn isn't doing it. I guess yeah. it'll be the, the, the platform might become too saturated if that happened, um, but I think it's so important. And one bit of advice like to any entrepreneur, like post consistently on LinkedIn, it really does help. And we, we, we've got a personal branding episode coming up. I don't know if I'm going to put it out before or after this episode, um, but really like, you know, nailing down your LinkedIn, um, writing content that sells, all that kind of stuff. I'd also, I'd also add from an investment perspective, actually, like if you have a personal brand on LinkedIn, um, you might actually have investors then reaching out to you. It's like, 
this this chicken and egg situation where actually I've heard so many funds have made investments off the back of seeing these companies um, be really transparent and open about how they're trying to build. build. Um, there was this whole trend on Twitter, I think, last year um, about kind of building public where you basically literally be very transparent, publish what you've done that day or that week, what you've achieved, the stats, all of that, how much you're selling. And it's basically a tactic to actually attract investors. I'm not sure how well it works, but it definitely gets you on people's radar, which is better than people just not knowing you exist. No, totally. I completely agree with you. So my final question is, if you could describe a good or successful entrepreneur in three words, what three words would they be and why? Crazily ambitious. I think you need to have so much confidence in yourself and, um, ambition to act and ambition not to succeed yourself but ambition to solve the problem the company is trying to solve it's like that's all you're focused on is making sure that you can go into the market or the space and use whatever you're building to make the world a better place and make sure this problem is kind of not non-existent or has been solved um another one um i would say linked to ambition drive i think to be able to put in the work and the effort and the grind when it's necessary it's people glamorize entrepreneurship a lot um people glamorize kind of the startup space a lot um but actually the people who do well are the people who will just go all in you know regardless of the issues they face the hurdles they overcome be that big or small they will just keep going and that links to my final one is being resilient i think entrepreneurs generally you know i felt this with cataclysm you know will stumble across problems on a daily basis they'll have big issues i like you know people will say no to investing in them people will not buy from them they might have to pivot their product to, like totally but staying resilient and being able to kind of take feedback on and make it into a better product make it into a better company is really really important that's really interesting i totally agree with you especially the bit about um especially the one about being ambitious i think that's really really important because i don't think if you're not ambitious an entrepreneur uh, ambitious sorry as an entrepreneur i think it's very very difficult to go far um because if you don't believe in yourself and if you don't want yourself to go far then nobody else is going to really think that i guess that's kind of links to investment if you're not ambitious enough then why is an investor going to think that you're going to go far and, you know, make millions. Um, So I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been fantastic talking to you and super interesting. Um, I know for a fact that lots of the listeners would have taken lots away from that. I've actually written down a couple of notes myself uh, because I'd be liking to get a bit of investment in the future. So thank you so much for coming on the show. No worries. Thank you for having me. That wraps up today's episode of the Enterprising Gen Z podcast. If you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening from and a five-star written review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Feel free to check out our socials. We're at Enterprising Gen Z Pod on Instagram and on TikTok. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week with another episode.